Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, elite media can give the impression that problems wax and wane along with their attention to them. And not to put too fine a point on it, they're done with police brutality. So if you think news media show you the world, you'll be surprised to hear that 2023 saw killings by law enforcement in the U.S. up from the previous year, which was up from the year before that, including not just those shot dead, but those fatally shocked by a stun gun, beaten, or restrained to death. 36% of those killed were fleeing, and yes, they were all disproportionately black. As far as corporate media are concerned, we've tried nothing and we're all out of ideas. Communities, on the other hand, are hard at work reimagining public safety without punitive policing. There's new work on those possibilities, and we'll hear about it from Manifa Bandele from the Movement for Black Lives. Also on the show, there is little research that is more important or less acknowledged than that from, at the time, Princeton, now UCLA's Martin Gillens, and Northwestern's Benjamin Page in 2014 on the translation of public opinion into public policy. They looked at more than 1,700 policies over 20 years and concluded that where economic elite views diverged from those of the public— as they would, the public had, quote, zero estimated impact upon policy change, while economic elites are still estimated to have a very large, positive, independent impact, close quote. Awareness of that fundamental disconnect is always relevant, but maybe especially when it comes to election season, where corporate news coverage suggests we have an array of choices, we're able to vote for people to represent our interests and our way forward, and let the most popular candidate win. We know it's not like this, but the reporting that could show us how and why elections don't work the way we all might think they do is just not there in any vigorous, sustained way. Add that to amped-up efforts to impede voting, even in this imperfect system, and people get discouraged. They don't vote at all, and problems are compounded. So how do we acknowledge flaws in the system while still encouraging people to participate and to fight the roadblocks to voting that we're seeing right now? We got at that a little bit with Savante Myrick, president of People for the American Way as well as former mayor of Ithaca, New York. That's coming up, and we'll get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Redirecting public resources away from punitive policing and toward community-centered mechanisms of public safety, like housing, like health care, is the sort of idea that years from now everyone will say they always supported. 
talking heads on TV will stroke their chins and recount the times when it was believed that police randomly harassing people of color on the street would decrease crime and that neighborhoods would greet police as liberators. The ongoing harms of racist police violence and the misunderstanding of ideas about responses are illustrated in new research from the Movement for Black Lives and Gen Forward. And joining us now to talk about it is Monifa Bendele, activist with Movement for Black Lives, as well as Senior Vice President and Chief Strategy Officer at Moms Rising. She joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Monifa Bandele. Thank you for having me. Well, let me ask you to start with the findings of the latest from mapping police violence. I I suspect some folks might be surprised because we're not seeing police killings on the front page so much anymore. But what did we learn actually about 2023? What we saw in 2023 was actually the highest number on record of police killing civilians in the United States since we've been documenting, which was higher than 2022, which 2022 was a record breaker. So police killings have actually been increasing year over year. Contrary to what people believe about the activism of 2020, and while we have seen emerge very important and successful local initiatives to shift public safety away from police into community alternatives, and those things are working overall across the country. We've seen an increase in police budgets. So police budgets have gone up, police killings have gone up, and the data shows locally in places like New York, which you can maybe say it's happening all over the country, is death and incarceration is also increasing. So just in January here in New York City, where I live, We've already seen two people die on Rikers Island, and the first month of the year isn't even over. Yeah. Let's get into the new perspectives on community safety, because, you know, so often we see corporate news media's defense of police violence presented as, you know, it's just liberal elitists who oppose things like stop and frisk. The people in these communities actually support aggressive policing because, you know, they're the victims of crime. So it's kind of you can pick safety over safety. And it's this false frame. And what's interesting and exciting about this new report is the way it disengages that. So tell us about this perspectives on community safety from Black America. What was the process? What was the listening process? And then what do you think is most important in the findings? Absolutely. Black people are just like any other people, right, all over the world. And so for a long time, people had no idea what options there could be, what alternatives there could be for community safety other than policing. It's not just presented in our policies and what we see on the streets. We're like fed a daily dose of it in our larger popular culture, the police shows, the true crime series. All of your favorite actors at some point have been on these policing shows or even if it shows about gangsters, quote unquote, or criminals, quote unquote, it really has what we call this kind of propaganda, which is police propaganda storyline, which ultimately says you need police, you need vigilantes, you need this tough on crime entity in order to have some semblance of safety in your community. 
So I'm actually really proud and impressed in the Black community because what our report shows is that even though we're like really bombarded, millions and millions of dollars are spent to convince people that this is the only way that you can get safety and people have lived their entire lives only experiencing this one model, that large portions of our community are really questioning that and are really listening to folks who are saying, hey, we actually know what keeps us safe, right? We know that people need care and not punishment. And this is something that while we do it sometimes in our buildings and in our tenant associations or in our families, this could be scaled up community-wide, this could be scaled up city-wide, statewide, nationally, where we actually figure out and get to the root of violence. We prevent most of it from happening because you have the right mechanisms in place. And then when people are in crisis and may cause harm to themselves or others, we combat that by giving them what they need to not be in crisis in that moment. So the report is showing us really that 2020 where the discussion around defund the police really, really exploded. It's not that we're in a retreat of that, but that it launched a conversation and that that conversation is growing year over year. And people are saying, you know what? I'm sick of people dying on Rikers Island. People have yet to, one, be charged with anything. And even if they were, they shouldn't be dying incarcerated. And I'm sick of feeling the fear of my loved ones when they interact with the police and and having to feel like that's also the only way that we can be safe. Well, to me, the fact that the report shows that support for alternative responses, for community-centered responses, goes up when specific solutions are named. Solutions rooted in prevention and in things like mental health. When you name possible responses folks can see them and believe in them. And of course, the flip side is, you know, and I'm a media critic, when those responses and alternatives are never named, or are presented as not feasible, or marginal, then that's a factor in whether or not people believe that they're possible. So this report to me is really about possibilities and how we need to see them. Absolutely. And it also disrupts the myth that somehow people who believe in the abolition of police and policing aren't concerned with public safety. When mass media kind of like reports on initially the vision for Black lives and the demand to defund the police and take off the whole entire invest-divest framework that's also presented in that same platform, they actually are misrepresenting the demand and therefore causing people to look at it through kind of like a false prism What invest-divest demands is the investing in mental health support, the investing in first responders who actually know what to do in a crisis, depending on what the crisis is. And so people know that when all you have is a hammer, everything is a nail, and that that's not effective. And we also have to remember that, particularly around this mental health crisis piece, we are in a larger mental health crisis right now. You know, we know the stories of Mohammed Ba and Daniel Cruz and Walter Wallace. And these are recent cases where families called for help. You know, they called for an ambulance. They called to get some mental health support for someone having an emotional health episode and the police come and kill them. These are real families and communities and people recognize, you know what? I'm actually being duped here. I'm left with a solution that's not a solution, it doesn't work, 
And no one is talking about the alternatives because I actually picked up the phone to call for help. I called for care and I said what I got was cops. So the solutions are named by activists and that is growing. It's spreading because it also just speaks to what people know. People know that in their heart. Sometimes even on my own block, I have a neighbor who has mental health episodes and we sent out around an email to the block association saying, don't dial 911 because they might come and kill her. Well, I thank you very much, and I I just want to ask you, finally, there's kind of a conversation happening about whether we're saving journalism or whether we're serving people's information needs, and I'm loving that paradigm shift because it's like, are we trying to stave up existing institutions just because they're existing institutions, or do we want to actually have a vision of things being different, and do we want to look at the needs those institutions say they're serving and talk about other ways to meet those needs. So there's a a conversation even about reporting that is about some of these same questions. And I just wanted to ask you, journalism is a public service. You know, corporate media is a profit-driven business, but journalism can be a public service. And I wonder what you think reporting could do to help propel this forward-looking movement forward? What would good journalism on this set of issues look like to you? Good journalism would have to be brave journalism. Some of the things that we see when it comes to reporting on police violence, when it comes to reporting on deaths in prisons or, you know, torture, solitary confinement, false imprisonment, is that all of a sudden journalists lose, you know, it's almost like, did you take writing. I mean, passive voice, when it comes to state violence, it makes my skin crawl. I mean, it's so, it speaks to the anxiety and the fears of the individual reporter, you know, to not name a thing a thing. You know, police kill 14-year-old instead of 14-year-old dies. (laughs) You know, that would be rejected by my English teacher if I wrote it. How, how are we all of a sudden not these brave truth tellers and storytellers? So one of the things that we really do need is like a level of integrity when it comes to state violence. And we find very few outlets and very few journalists, you know, stick to that regardless of where they lean on the subject or how they feel overall about prison and policing abolition. But just to say this thing happens to this family, to this individual. And the perpetrator is this person, and they are in the police department. And the reason why we were always taught not to use the passive voice, because it does alter one's feeling about what you're saying about the incident, right? Is it someone just walk down the street and die? That's going to make me feel a lot different when you articulate that they were killed. And this person was killed by this other person or this entity or this institution. And then we have to just really figure out how to separate the money, you know, because I think a lot of that fear, a lot of that lack of bravery of reporting has to be the fact that this is how we get paid or this is how our institution, you know, we talk about corporate media, this is how we stay on the air, or this is how we keep the papers printed, is that we are owned by someone who'd be very upset if we were too truthful about this. I'm also really excited about community-based reporting, These some podcasts that I've seen emerge where people are telling the stories of their communities and the voices of members of the communities, you know, like really 
reporting self-determination, so to speak, emerging that I've been listening to. I think these are all really important ways to counter what we're seeing in corporate media, where it seems like it's just the story is twisted in a pretzel to support status quo. We've been speaking with Monifa Bandele, activist with the Movement for Black Lives. You can find the report that we're talking about, Perspectives on Community Safety from Black America, at m4bl.org. That's m4bl.org. Thank you so much, Monifa Bandele, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. We can argue that with gerrymandering, Citizens United and the power of money, and even the Electoral College, one person, one vote is not the simple recipe for fully participatory democracy that we might wish. Still, voting, voting rights, voting access is the definition of a keystone issue that shapes many, many other important issues. So how and why have voting rights become a contested field in a country that, as I say, has democratic aspirations? And what can we do? What are we doing about it? We're joined now by Savante Myrick, president of People for the American Way and former mayor of Ithaca, New York. Welcome to Counterspin, Savante Myrick. Thank you so much for having me on. Really appreciate it. And all of us here at People for the American Way appreciate the chance to talk about this issue. Wonderful. Well, let me just ask it simply. What are currently the chief impediments to voting rights that you see that have led you to say it's up to us to march again or that have led uh, Senator Raphael Warnock to talk about democracy in reverse? What are we up against? I wish I could tell you that, hey, you know, there are simple, small fixes. There's a challenge in a country of 360 million people making sure ballots arrive on time. I wish I could tell you that there was a bureaucratic or technocratic problem. But the truth is, it's something more akin to a war in which one half of the American political spectrum, that half that is beholden to extreme MAGA Republicans, is set out to intentionally disenfranchise people of voting. And they, they really have not been more plain spoken about this at any time since the 60s, since George Wallace and since the KKK. There was a time where both sides agreed that voting is good and everybody should have a right to vote, especially after the 2020 election led by Donald Trump. State legislators, people who are not household names, folks that, you know, you won't often see on CNN or MSNBC, state legislators are taking their cues from Donald Trump and passing dozens and dozens and dozens. I just came from Utah, where yet another law was passed that makes it harder to vote. Utah used to have very good voting laws. Everybody got a ballot in the mail. You could just fill it out, send it back in. You had weeks and weeks to do it. They just repealed that. Why? Is it because uh, Donald Trump lost Utah? No, it's because the state legislators are trying to curry favor with with a president that that just frankly does not want everyone's vote to count. Mm -hmm. And if it's okay, if I just say what probably is obvious to many of your listeners, but I think it it deserves to be said, they're not trying to take away everyone's right to vote. Mm -hmm. They're trying to take away certain people's right to vote. I'm a black American, and I just know for a fact that this Trump-led faction of the Republican Party would love for black Americans' votes not be counted. 
And uh, I know that because they are moving with almost surgical precision to disenfranchise people like me and my family. And then we see it also coming, you're talking about a kind of top-down motivation, Um, and then we see it also at the Supreme Court, you know, and listeners will know about Shelby County versus Holder in 2013, but there were serious impacts from that as well. You know, we here at People for the American Way, we're fighting really hard at every state legislature, at every level, to make sure people have a right to vote, because we think if you can't choose your own leaders, then nothing else matters, as they say. If you can't choose from the menu, then you're what's for dinner, right? (laughs) And that is about voting rights, and it's about the voting laws. But as you mentioned, the Supreme Court, it's also about money. It's about money in politics. And if a few wealthy billionaires can throw their weight around, as we're seeing now, and extort university presidents and donate unlimited amounts of dark money to whatever shady person that they like, because of whatever deal they've made behind closed doors, then we don't live in a true democracy anyway. And so when the Supreme Court made its Citizens United decision, it allowed that corporations with people and money with speech and that money and speech should be unlimited. They really put us on a dark path, one that we're still living with today. So we are also here at People for the American Way fighting to get money out of politics to overturn Citizens United, but also to pass things like matching funds for elections and the stuff that make it easier for people, frankly, like me, people who grew up without a lot of money, folks who were not the sons of senators, folks who are not in the pockets of big corporations to run for office and to win. Despite what we've just said, or in part because of it, I am surprised when people are surprised that people don't vote. Mm. You know, while I lament it, I see the fact that some people just don't see a connection between this lever they pull and the policies and laws governing their lives, I see that as an indictment of the system and not of the people. And so I wanted to ask you to talk about what we've seen labeled low propensity voters Mm -hmm. and different responses, like what People 4 is talking about, responses that are better than saying these people are so dumb they don't even know how to vote their own interests. And that's so well said. You know, certainly our system has failed in many ways. But Extreme right-wingers have also been waging an 80-year war, maybe longer, to convince Americans that government does nothing for them, Mm -hmm. that their representatives don't improve their lives. And so uh, when they do things like starve schools and school budgets, starve road budgets so that there are potholes in the street, and try to shrink government down to a size where you can drown it in a bathtub, they make sure it is dysfunctional from Reagan to George W. Bush to Donald Trump. They break the system and then say, hey, see, government, it can't work at all. Why bother? Why bother to vote at all? And so I think it is good to remind yourself that for the average American who is not listening to CNN or MSNBC all day, first of all, they're probably happier, their blood pressure is lower, but that they've also been subject to generations Uh, misinformation about the power of collective action and how much better their circumstances, their their lives, the quality of their life, the health of their finances could be if we lived in a country that took more collective action. Like we see, frankly, in some Scandinavian nations where folks really trust that the power of their vote is going to lead to positive progressive change. 
Well, is there legislation or are there moves afoot that could be responsive or would be responsive to the suppressive efforts that we're seeing? Are there things to pull for in terms of policy? Yes, absolutely. So if people go to People for the American Way, Com, you could see all uh, of the work that we're doing at each state legislature. Now, of course, fighting state by state is an inefficient way to do this. The best way to reclaim our own democratic power is to pass federal legislation, what we call the For the People Act. It would make it easier for people to run for office, easier for people to vote, easier for people to have their voices heard. We're also fighting at the federal level to overturn Citizens United. This is a complicated and lengthy process to overturn a Supreme Court decision, but you can do it. We are well on our way, and we encourage people to join us. Well, finally, let me ask you about journalism. Um, Mm. Certainly, we see all kinds of problems with election coverage, you know, Mm. from ignoring down-ballot races that we know can be critical to sort of focusing on horse race and heavy-handed polling, almost everything but candidates' actual plans for what they would do and how that would affect us. But coverage of voting rights is not the same as election coverage, but I just wonder, certainly election coverage gives an opening to talk about those issues. Are there things that you'd like to see more or less of from media? For sure. I, well, yes. And you just listed a whole host of them. <laughs> you know, honestly, the, 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 the constant coverage of polling does have a suppressive effect on the vote. Because people, when they just listen and follow the polls, they sort of feel like the vote already happened. Right. At least they feel like they know what's going to happen. Why bother? We're down two. We're up four. They don't need my vote. It's already done. So that's one problem. The media can help people understand that all this harping about elections and voter disenfranchisement is not dweeby and nerdy. It can seem it a little bit. It's like (laughs) in my family, I was the one that always had the rule book for Monopoly. And I was like, you can't do that. The rules are important. Uh, do not pass go. And <laughs> other people are like, I don't want to talk about the rules for how, how we decide this stuff. I just want my streets to be better paved. Right? I think if the media could help folks understand that he who makes the rules determines the outcome. Whatever it is you care about, whatever it is you're voting for, if it's for better health care, if it's for peace in the Middle East, if it's for more money for you and your family, uh, if it's for a, a better quarterback for the New York Giants, finally, um, whoever sets up the rules of the game can help make sure that their outcome is more likely. And Republicans know that, frankly, better than Democrats do. The Republicans have turned their entire apparatus not into improving people's lives, but into taking away their right to vote. So that as soon as they have total powers, they do in places like, like Tennessee, for example, they can start expelling lawmakers that they don't like. They can cut corporate taxes basically to zero, and they can abandon the poor and the middle class. And they do all that by making it harder for people to vote first. And we won't know what we've got till it's gone. Yeah. Mm. We've been speaking with Svante Myrick. He's president of People for the American Way. Svante Myrick, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, fair.org. 
The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.